Much like the Left Behind series would later do, the Thief in the Night movies attempted to paint a picture of what the world would look like in the end times after the rapture of the church, during the tribulation, during the formation of a one world government, during the final battle between heaven and the opposing forces on earth. This was all put on the movies, movie screens. It was created in like 1972. I think all four movies, I think, were shot in one year, which is crazy to think about. But they were, they were all shot in 1972, done in the 70s, and this was like early 90s, early mid-90s, this was playing in our, in, in our church. And so <coughs> it, it was scary. It was scary, especially to an eight-year-old kid. It was scary. But the thing that I will never forget, the thing that I will never forget is in the middle of the third movie, this is happening at like 1 a.m., in the middle of the third movie, um, you have the, the forces of the Antichrist who are searching down and hunting down the people who have refused to take the mark of the beast. And they're hunting them down, and they're trying to convince them that they should receive the mark of the beast, and they should take the mark of the beast, they should get the mark of the beast, and all this stuff is going on. And in the movie, it's like getting really, really, really intense, and there's this one person that they capture and they're trying to convince and they're trying to convince and they're trying to use force and they're trying to you know torture this person until they'll accept the mark of the beast and finally they give them one last opportunity said you take it now or we're going to take your life and i'm like oh my goodness as an eight-year-old I mean, as an eight-year-old i'm sitting there watching this i'm like i don't think i should be watching this and my and and, and i see it happen and the person goes no i believe in jesus and i'll never receive the mark of the beast and they take the person and they put this guy in a guillotine and they chop his head off, and right towards the screen comes, like, toward, you know, towards the, the camera, comes rolling this guy's head in the middle of this movie. And at that moment, I just lost it. I had my, like, Kevin from Home Alone moment at 1 a.m. in our church basement. Like I, like, I was like, ah! And I ran out of the room, and I ran across the church basement. And eventually, one of the adults caught, kind of caught me and said, like, like hey, 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 what's, what's going on? Why, why are you running around? Why are you screaming? What's, what's, what's going on? And I said, they just chopped that guy's head off in that room, and <laughs> which is like the worst way I could have said that, but I was eight. And so I said, they just chopped a guy's head off in that room. And the, the adult guy like really concerned. He's like, I'll go check it out. And <laughs> he walked into the room and he came like, oh, you mean in the movie? So nothing's wrong. And I had two thoughts. A, what else did he think I meant by that? Like if he thought that someone in the room actually chopped someone's head off and he walked in real casually, like what was his plan? What else did he think was going on in that room? And what was his plan in case something far worse was going on than the movie? Second thing is I was like, no, something is going on. Something is incredibly wrong because you're letting an eight-year-old watch that. I'm going to have nightmares for weeks because that's so, so, so disturbing and so, so troubling. Now, that's kind of funny and a lighthearted introduction uh, to a very real truth. And the very real truth that I want to discuss as we get to the beginning today is simply this, that the tribulation may be the most relatable part of Revelation. That the, the tribulation and the trouble and the trials and every, and every bit of trouble that we're about to discuss today, it actually may be the most relatable part of Revelation. Because whether or not you, you and I live through the great tribulation, life is full of trouble and trials and tribulation and confusion. Whether or not you and I will see the end times, we know that our times are full of difficulty, full of pain, full of trials, full of confusion, full of trouble. In fact, this is one of the least comforting promises of Jesus that, that he said, in this life, you will have 
trouble. Some of you know that verse too well. Some of you, 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 you didn't realize that was a verse, but you, you just thought it was a life truth. That Jesus actually promised that in this life, you will have trouble. That we don't have to wait till the end times to experience trouble. That trouble comes to every single one of us at some point in the life. And, and you'll have personal trouble where you'll feel like your personal life is falling apart. You'll have faith trouble where the events and the troubles of life may cause you to question your faith. You may even have some moments of where it feels like faith persecution where you have moments where you lose something because of your faith. You lose a job advancement opportunity. You lose a date. Someone won't date you because of your faith. You'll have faith trouble. You'll, have, uh, you'll live with trouble that you and your choices cause, and you will live with trouble that others cause by their choices and their actions. That's the personal trouble that you will have. And there's also global trouble where it's not just your world, but it seems like the world actually seems to be falling apart. And I think many of us, we have felt like, as we looked around over the last couple of years, going like, yeah, it's not just my personal world that seems to be crumbling. It seems like the world around me seems to be crumbling. And in that regard, Revelation confronts us with a really interesting series of questions and provides an incredibly comforting and incredibly amazing series of answers. It asks us questions like, well, what is God up to in the middle of all this trouble? What is God up to in the middle of life's trouble? And here's an even bigger one. What is God up to when he causes life's trouble? What, like, what, like, what is God up to? Like, when God is actually causing the, the trouble, and it, like, and it doesn't seem like I can find comfort in God because he's the one causing the trouble. What is God up to in the middle of the trouble that God causes? And maybe here's the biggest one. Can we trust God in the middle of the troubles of life? Like, like we look to the end times and go, like, hey, I want to believe that God's good. I want to believe that God's doing something. I want to believe that God's active. I want to believe that even when God is causing this trouble, that he is ultimately up to something good. But look at all the trouble. Can we actually trust that God is good and that God is up to something big and that God is up to something good in the middle of life's trouble? And amazingly, this intensely symbolic book of the here and now and the then and there provides us with a picture of the end that can bring us some big answers in the here and now. That's what's amazing about the book of Revelation. It provides pictures of the then and there that also can help us in the here and now. And so today, as we begin to look at the tribulation, as we begin to look at the trouble, we start naturally with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. In Revelation chapter 6, we're told this, As I watched, the Lamb broke the first of the seven seals on the scroll. Then I heard one of the four living beings say with a voice like thunder, Come! I looked up and saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow and a crown was placed on his head. He rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. Now, we need to point this out. This is not the same white horse and rider that rides out later in Revelation as Jesus returns to earth. This white horse and the rider most likely symbolize deception and division. Deception and division. Notice the white the, the rider carries a bow but no arrows. See, a bow allows you to win battles without getting in proximity with those that you are fighting. So how will this rider win battles and gain victory? Through deception by causing division. Many Bible commentators suggest that the use of a false white, a false white, that this is more like the rider uh, on, a, on, a, on a mother of pearl horse. Like or, This rider's goal and then his entire aim is to deceive people and to divide people, to deceive people and to divide people, to use their words and to use everything they have, to deceive people, to spread false information, to spread you know, lies, to spread deception, to spread false information and deception, and to divide people from one another. 
to, to deceive and to divide, to deceive and to divide, to, de- to cause deception and division among the people of the earth. This is the rider on the white horse. In verse 3, it says this, When the lamb broke the second seal, I heard the second living being say, Come. Then another horse appeared, a red one. Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth. And there was war and slaughter everywhere. Everywhere. This rider capitalizes on deception and division and brings about violent war on earth. Notice, while the previous rider carried a bow without arrows, this rider is given a mighty sword and given the authority to take peace from the earth. We're told that as a result of this rider, and war and slaughter, not war and like injury, but war and slaughter will be everywhere. Verse 5 tells us this, When the Lamb broke, up, broke the third seal, I heard the third living being say, Come. I looked up and saw a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard a voice from among the four living beings say, A loaf of wheat bread or, or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay. And don't waste the olive oil and wine. See, this rider is known as famine or scarcity. Now, I know some of you, you love some good bread. Some some of you, the very reason that you follow Jesus is that you know Jesus called himself the living bread, that he called himself the bread of life, and you're like, nice, I'm following that guy. This is interesting enough. This is talking about the scarcity of bread and the resulting inflation of prices that a person could work all day and only be able to afford, afford a loaf of bread as a single person if they, or to afford three loaves of barley, which is what the poor families ate, and it was enough to provide for their whole family. That a person could work an entire day and only be able to afford one loaf of bread, that that's how scarce food would become, that there would be no food, and because there would be no food, prices of food would rise incredibly. I did some quick math. Our city's minimum wage is $11.50 per hour, and if you work a whole eight-hour shift, you would make $92 before taxes. Let's say you get hit with 20% tax. You make $74 in take-home pay a day. That's what a loaf of bread would cost. Like, I know we're living in some times of, of some pretty severe inflation in our world, but we haven't gotten there yet, okay? Like, like, that, like that's some, that's, that may be some very good news for us, that we haven't reached that point of inflation where we haven't reached a point where an entire day's work can only provide enough for, to barely survive as a family or as a person. See, I, see like, but it, this actually makes perfect sense in the follow-up of the previous writers, right? After deception and division and war, land that would grow food has been destroyed, People who used to work the land and work in food production have been killed. There is not enough food, and as hard as you work, you would barely have enough to provide food for you or your family or much, or much less anything else. This is a, a, the idea of scarcity, that there is not enough to go around, and we're competing, and we're now fighting over what we have, what, 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 like what, what, what we can get and what we can, we're, you know, what we can take home to our families. This is the idea of scarcity. In verse 7, we're told, when the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living being say, come. I looked up and saw a horse whose color was pale green. Its rider was named Death, and his companion was the grave. These two were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and disease and wild animals. After deception and division comes war and violence. After war and violence comes famine and scarcity. And after famine and scarcity, naturally, comes death. Comes death. Comes the death of maybe up to a quarter of the population 
of the world. Now, here's what, here's what I think is so fascinating here. Many serious biblical scholars suggest that the first bit of God's wrath or God's judgment would actually best be called Satan's wrath unchecked. Satan's wrath unchecked. That these writers symbolize everything the enemy of God has used and stood by from the very beginning. Deception, division, war, scarcity, withholding, and death. That that is everything Satan has clung to from the very beginning. And it's an interesting thing that the beginning of God's judgment on the earth is to allow the earth to experience everything the enemy has to offer. You could say it this way. The way I want to say it today is simply this. The beginning of God's judgment of the world is not to give the world what the world deserves, but to give the world the fullness of what they have already chosen. That, that the beginning of God's judgment, the beginning of the tribulation, the beginning of, of the world's greatest trouble that we've ever had is not to get what God says we deserve, but is to give us the fullness of what we already choose when we choose away from God. See, God's plan is to allow humanity to see fully unveiled where sin takes them and experience every bit of the natural consequences of deception and division and violence and warring and faith in economy and faith in self. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? That God doesn't send us what we deserve. He sends us what we have already chosen. Now, I'm not going to read all the scripture pertaining to the rest of the judgment that will come from God as the tribulation and the great tribulation rages on. But I do want to tell what's to come and to, to briefly give an overview of these, of these events and to, and to point out a few specific verses that actually come in the middle of all these events. You have the fifth seal, which tells us where the souls of, of the martyrs cry out to God to judge the world. It's interesting. They note that God hasn't yet begun to judge the world yet. He's allowing the enemy's full arsenal to be displayed. You have the sixth seal, which is a gigantic earthquake. Every mountain, and we're told that every mountain and every island is shaken at its foundations and moved from their place. The sun turns black, the moon turns red, and stars begin falling to earth. But don't look up, Netflix pun. Yeah, so and then we get this interesting little nugget from Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. It says this, Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and every free person all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to survive? The world that rejected God would rather choose death than turn to God would rather choose death, would rather rocks fall on them to their end than turn to God. They know who they are running from. They understand the cause of the chaos and catastrophe they are experiencing, and they still refuse to choose Him. And then we have this, this pause before the seventh seal is opened. And when the seventh seal is opened, we're told that there is silence in heaven and fire is thrown down to, thrown down to earth, that, that heavenly fire is thrown down to earth. We have heaven-level lightning and thunder. We have a terrible earthquake. And with the seven seals completed, now we get the seven trumpets of God's judgment. In the first trumpet, we are, we're told that hail and fire mixed with blood is poured 
on the earth. A third of earth, the grass and the trees are burned up in a moment. And with trumpet number two, something like a mountain on fire. That's the word from the Something like a mountain th- on fire. Like, wh- what is that? Something like a mountain on fire is thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turns to blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea are dead. And a third of the ships of the sea are destroyed in a moment. Trumpet number three is the star Wormwood falls to the earth, causing a third of the water to turn bitter, which causes death from the contaminated water. You have trumpet number four, where a third of the sun is struck, a third of the moon is darkened, a third of the stars turn dark, which results in a third of the day is without light and a third of the night is without light. You have trumpet number five, five where, where stars fall to, to the earth and open what's called the abyss. Out of the abyss, the destroyer rises from the abyss with smoke that darkened the sun and the sky. And from the smoke comes his army of locusts, which looked like horses with crowns, faces that looked like, looked like human faces with hair and teeth like a lion. Like this is an incredibly visual description. And, and, and the, they, these locusts, they wear armor of iron with wings that roar like an army rushing into battle and tails that sting like scorpions. They are specifically told, they are specifically told not to harm plants, grass, or trees. And they don't have the ability to kill people, but they have the ability to torment for up to five months. And you have trumpet number six, where we're told that four forces are let loose who will lead an army totaling 200 million mounted soldiers. They ride horses that spew fire and sulfur from their mouths and also have tails that look like the heads of snakes with the power to injure. They kill one third of the people on the earth. And once again, we're told that after trumpet six, that the people of earth still choose not to repent and turn to God that the people of earth still will not turn from their ways and repent and turn to God. And then trumpet number seven blows. We're told that the announcement that the kingdom of earth has now become the kingdom of God. The temple in heaven opens and lightning and thunder roar. Another huge earthquake and a gigantic hailstorm. And then as before, we're told that the seventh trumpet leads to the final portion of tribulation on earth as judgment from God, the seven bowls of God's wrath. In Revelation chapter 16, we're told that bowl one, when bowl one is poured out, horrible, malignant sores broke out on everyone bearing the mark of allegiance to the beast. With bowl number two, when that's poured out, we're told that the sea became like the blood of a corpse and everything in the sea died. When bowl number three is poured out, we're told that the fresh waters become blood and, and everything in them died. So we're told that the salt waters have have, have been turned to blood and everything in them dies and everything that's in the fresh waters dies as well. With bowl number four, when that's poured out, we're told that the sun turns violent and it scorches people with its fire and blast of heat. And we're told after that that people still would not repent and turn to God. After bowl number five, we're told that the throne of the beast is plunged into darkness. The kingdom of the beast is thrown into darkness and the beast's subjects grind their teeth in anguish at the pain and the difficulty and the trouble that they are experiencing. And we're told after bowl number five, that the people still would not repent and turn to God. After bowl number six is poured out, we're told that specific rivers dry up, removing a physical barrier to battle and war, and that demonic spirits prepare, prepare all nations and armies to go to war against God and the forces of heaven. And after bowl number seven, we're told that it is finished is proclaimed. And after that's proclaimed, thunder, lightning, a great earthquake, we're told the worst earthquake in human history, Cities fall into heaps of rubble, islands disappear, mountains are leveled, and hailstones weighing 75 pounds fall to the earth 
crushing people. And we're told after bowl number seven that people still won't repent and turn to God. Instead, they curse God. Now, let's take a breath because that is a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot of trouble. There's a lot of trouble, a lot of trials, a lot of tribulation, which is why it's known as the Great Tribulation. But there's one line or one idea that's repeated at least five times throughout these prophetic words that I think helps us understand God's heart in the heat of the tribulation. It's that line, but still the people would not repent and turn to God. Now, here's a question. Why would John record that thought and that line over and over and over again? I believe the reason John recorded that thought and that line over and over is because John, who had spent time with Jesus, knew this truth, that God's hope for the world and for every human is redemption. That God's hope for the world and God's hope for every human, God's hope for all humanity is redemption. That God brings his judgment and God pours out his discipline and God pours out his wrath with the hope that maybe, that maybe, just maybe, if they've experienced all the pain and all the destruction that the enemy has to offer, they'll repent and turn to me and find redemption and find new life. Maybe if, they've, if they haven't accepted the display of love I showed through the, my son, maybe when they see, they see the display of my power and my authority, that maybe when they see all that and they experience the discipline, they experience the consequences of their own choices, that maybe when they see my, my show of power, they will turn to me and they will turn away from the ways that they have lived. They will turn to me for redemption. Because God's hope for humanity, God's hope for you, God's hope for me has always been for our redemption, for our repentance, for our turning to him and our finding redemption in him. It's like you can almost sense God hoping for repentance and an opportunity to forgive and redeem people even through the rhythm of his judgment. It's like judgment, judgment, judgment. Pause. Did this discipline cause them to turn to me for redemption? Did did, did it work? Did it work? Not not yet? Well, judgment, discipline, judgment, discipline, pause. Did that cause them to turn from their ways and to look to me and to repent and to seek me for redemption? Did, Did that work? Like God's hope for the world and for every human is redemption. And because he's the unchanging God who was and who is and who always will be, redemption was his hope from the very beginning when we walked away in the garden. Redemption through Jesus is his hope for you right now in the middle of the trials that you're facing, in the middle of the tribulation that you're facing, in the middle of the trouble that sin has brought you, redemption is his hope for you right now. And redemption will ultimately be his hope even in the midst of his judgment and his discipline at the end. What's God up to in our trouble? To answer the questions that we asked earlier, what's God up to in our trouble? That's what he is up to. That's what he's up to. He is working toward the redemption of any and all who will call out to him. God, can God be trusted in the middle of our trouble? Oh, yeah. He can even be trusted in the trouble that he causes. You want to know why? God can be trusted in our trouble because his intention is our redemption. God can be trusted in the middle of our trouble and in the middle of the trouble that he causes, in the middle of the trouble that he uses to bring our attention back to him because his intention is 
always has been and always will be our redemption, to make you new, to take the broken things of your life and make you new, to take the things that sin, that your sin has broken in your life and make you new and give you new life. That's who he is. That's what he's done. And even in the middle of the outpouring of God's judgment and wrath and discipline on a world that had turned away from him, we see over and over and over again that God is good, that God's hope for humanity is that even in the middle of the trouble that he causes, in the trouble of life, in the tribulation of life, in the trials of life, in the confusion of life, his hope is and always has been and always will be that we will turn to him for the answers, that we will turn to him for redemption, that we will repent of living for ourselves and living in our own direction and turn in his direction to be made new. And that's also why The key to understanding God in the middle of the tribulation, throughout the entirety of the tribulation, is actually not found in the tribulation, but it's found in Revelation chapter 5 before the tribulation even begins. Here's what we're told in Revelation chapter 5. We're told this, Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy. Would you say worthy? Would you type in the chat bar worthy? Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping, look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. This is Jesus. He's pointing to Jesus. Jesus has won the victory. He is worthy. Jesus is worthy because he won a victory for you and for me and for heaven. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings. This is also Jesus. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He's the Lamb of God. He won the victory, and he's perfectly peaceful. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold Spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward, and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, a new song with these words. This is so interesting. We're told by John that the song that they are about to sing has never been sung before. But because the Lamb of God has won a victory, there is a new song in heaven, and it says this. They sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God. Jesus, you are worthy because your blood, your sacrifice, you laying down your life, bought and purchased a a relationship with God for all of humanity from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. 
I mean, like, you read this and you go, wait, wait, wait. What does that have to do with the tribulation? See, what's about to happen is Jesus is about to open the seals that we talked about at the beginning, the first seal, the second seal, the third seal, the fourth seal, the fifth, sixth, seventh seal. He's about to open the seals. And they say, who is worthy to bring about the judgment of the earth? Who is worthy to bring about the judgment of the world that has turned their back on God? And here's what we learn about Jesus. Here's what we learn about God, our Heavenly Father. The one who laid down his life for your life is worthy of our whole life. The one who laid down his life for your life, for my life, is worthy of our whole life. He is worthy. Because he came to earth for you, he's worthy. Because he went to a cross to pay for your sins, he's worthy. Because the grave couldn't hold him. Because death couldn't hold him. Because sin had no power over him. He is worthy. See, we don't use that word worthy a whole lot, but here's what that word worthy would mean. He is deserving. He's qualified. He meets all the job requirements. His resume is packed with qualifying experience. That's what it means that he is worthy. He's worthy of our whole lives. He's worthy of our devotion. He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy as a judge. He's worthy of everything that we could ever give because he laid down his life to purchase and to redeem your life. And because of that, he's worthy of your whole life. See, what, what scripture teaches us right here is actually that he's worthy in four key ways. He's worthy as our eternal judge, as our eternal judge. The one who is worthy to judge the world is the one who loves the world and loves humanity so much that he would lay down his life for its redemption. You might wonder sometimes, well, what makes Jesus qualified to judge the world like this? Like, like what what makes Jesus qualified? What makes Jesus qualified? The thing that makes Jesus qualified to judge the world, as we saw in the tribulation, is that he laid down his life for the world. And the only one qualified to judge the world is the one who loves humanity so deeply that he willingly laid down his life for the redemption and salvation of a broken world and broken humanity. Because of his death, because of his sacrifice, because of his resurrection, he is worthy as our eternal judge because only the one who would lay down his life out of love for the world is worthy to judge the world He's worthy as our eternal judge. He's worthy of our temporary trust. See, you know and I know that there are moments in every life, including yours, where it feels like the world is falling apart. And when the world is falling apart, we ask that question, we ask, really, what's God up to in the middle of our trouble? What is God up to in the middle of our tribulation? What's God up to in the middle of our confusion? What's God up to in the middle of our chaos? When it feels like my life is falling apart, when it feels like our world is falling apart, when it feels like everything is falling apart, where is God and what is God up to? And because of this scripture, because of what we've just read, we know that Jesus is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our whole life. He's worthy of my trust in him. That even when I can't see it, I believe and trust that he is working. That I trust what Romans 8.28 says, that he is working all things together for good. And all things is going to mean there's going to be some things that I think are bad at the time. And there's going to be some things that I think mean my world is falling apart. And there's going to be some things that cause me deep pain. But in the middle of it, I choose to trust that he is working all things. And so he's worthy of my temporary and my momentary trust. He's worthy as the eternal judge over all, but he's also of my temporary trust right here and right now, every single day. And so for some of you right now, 
in the middle of what you're facing, in the middle of the trials and the tribulation that you are going through right now, in the middle of the trouble of your life, you can trust God because he is working all things together for the good of those who love him. He's worthy of our temporary trust. He's worthy of our every moment faithfulness. That even when I don't like what God is doing or where Jesus is leading, I follow faithfully. See, one of the things that I feel when I'm reading through the, the idea of the, the tribulation in, in Revelation is I'm going like, I, I don't like what God's doing there. To, from, from my perspective, my limited perspective, I feel like God is going too far. And, and anyone else feel that? Like, 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 I feel that when I'm like, I'm like, holy cow. Ooh, I, like, I don't like everything that God is doing in the tribulation. But here's what I've learned. I, I was a youth pastor for a long time. This right here is the difference between youth group faith and grown-up faith. See, youth group faith is, I love Jesus. I love what Jesus is doing in my life. Jesus is bringing me blessings. Jesus is bringing me great things. Jesus is doing awesome, and I love Jesus. But youth group faith tends to fall apart the second Jesus does something that we don't like. Youth group faith falls apart when life gets difficult. Youth group faith falls apart when it's confronted with God is asking me to move in a direction and to follow him in a direction, and he's doing some things that, I, that don't make me feel good. This is what grown-up faith looks like. That grown-up faith says, even when I don't like it, I still believe he's good. Even when, I, even when it makes me uncomfortable, I still believe he's good. Even when I don't know that I agree with everything that God is doing, I still choose to live a life of faithfulness because at the end of the day, the one who laid his life down for me gets to decide what, what my whole life is about. And I'm not going to let a moment of uneasiness and a moment of uncomfort and a moment of, and a moment of queasy feelings to set aside the fact that I believe that Jesus is the answer and has the answers and I'm going to follow him faithfully with everything I've got. And so I may feel uncomfortable with it, but I'm going follow. And I may disagree and go, I got God, what are you doing? But I'm going to just follow. And I may go, God, I really, really, really don't like what you're asking me to do right now, but I am going to follow faithfully every moment. And finally, he is worthy of our active devotion. See, what I love is it says in heaven, because of the victory that Jesus won, they sing a new song, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory and power forever. Worthy is the Lamb. And, and in an amazing, amazing thing that we get to do here on earth, we get to take the reality that is already reality in heaven and choose it as our reality here and now and practice for heaven and practice for the end now and practice that someday when we join with the voices in heaven, we will have spent years and years of our life practicing right now and giving active worship and praise and honor and devotion to our heavenly Father and to His Son, the Savior of the world. That we can with our lives right now, you can with, with your lives at home right now, as we're about to sing some songs of worship, we can remind ourselves that what we're doing is praising and recognizing the goodness of our Heavenly Father, the goodness of His Son, our Savior, the goodness of the, of the Holy Spirit that lives and dwells inside of us. We can practice our devotion to God now by living a life of active devotion to God. 
See, Jesus is worthy. That's the message of the tribulation. That in the tribulation, God is still working for our redemption. That even in the trouble and the trials and the tribulation and the confusion and the chaos of life, God is always working for your redemption and to make you new and to bring you back into a relationship with Him. This is our beginning. This is why we can find a beginning in the end. That because Jesus is our foundation, that Jesus won the victory, that we don't have to win a victory. Jesus won a victory for us. And because Jesus won a victory for us, he is our beginning before the end begins. He's the beginning in the end. God can be trusted because he's working for your redemption. Jesus can be trusted because he's worthy, because he won a victory for you, because he laid down his life for you, and he's worthy as the judge. He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our faithfulness, and he's worthy of our devotion. That's the beginning that I hope you find in the end. That's the beginning I hope we all find in the end. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, today I thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. God, thank you for this incredible, crazy book of Revelation. God, thank you that it reveals to us what maybe we so often forget. That in the middle of our trouble, in the middle of our confusion, in the middle of the chaos of life, you are working. And you are working for our redemption. And you are working for, to bring us back to a relationship with you. And God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the victory that he won for us. Thank you for the victory that he won for us when he laid down his life for us. So God, help us to trust you. Help us to trust Jesus. Help us to follow you. Help us to follow you faithfully even when it's not comfortable because we know you're worthy of our whole lives. We love you, God, and we pray this all in Jesus' strong name. Amen.